tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today we're talking to Tim Rose, who is the man behind some of my favorite creatures in Star Wars, period. I've been wanting to talk to Mr. Rose since I started this podcast. From Admiral Akbar to Cy Snoodles to Salacious Crumb, and then returning for the new sequels, Mr. Rose was a delight to talk to. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 24, Tim Rose. All right, well, I'm Brandon, and I'm actually here at Madness Comics Live, and I've been wanting to do this interview since we started this podcast. One of my favorite characters, and also one of just one of the most iconic performers of the Star Wars saga. I'm here with Mr. Oh, Tim Rose. Gosh, I'm blushing now. <laughs> <laughs> this is audio, so you, yeah. Uh, Cy Snoodles, Salacious Crumb, Admiral Akbar. I mean, and then we were talking about Howard the Duck earlier. Right? The the characters that you personified are just so incredibly near and dear to my heart. So, this is a huge honor. I, I have people come to me all the time and say, "You were my childhood." <laughs> <laughs> Between the Dark Crystal and Howard right. and Labyrinth and Muppets Christmas Carol and all these things, yeah. you know, it's like. I managed to uh, touch an awful lot of people's lives right. in the course of trying to pay the mortgage, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, maybe let's start with how you got started in kind of this world of puppeteering and in the movies. What, what kind of drew you to that? I was trying to work out what I wanted to be when I grew up. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed a lot of different things. I enjoyed making things. Um, I started the university to be a graphics artist. Okay. And while I was at the university, I got involved with the theater, and I said, oh, the acting's kind of a fun lark, too. You know, I enjoyed that. And we started doing Renaissance fairs at the university, and because it was the first year, we tried to each do something else other than the plays we were acting in to make the fair bigger. So I started reading about Bartholomew fairs over in England, and Punch and Judy kept coming up. So in my complete ignorance of how difficult it is, I just said, oh, I'll do a puppet show as well. I'll do a Punch and Judy show. Uh And there was a mom and pop marionette team that used to entertain at our school when I was a little kid. And I knew where they lived because they lived near my friend Johnny. And so I went over and I knocked on the door and I said, "Um, excuse me, I know you don't know me, but uh, could you teach me how to make a puppet? And instead of telling me to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there was the highway, you know. Yeah. They they brought me inside and took me downstairs where their workshop was. And on the walls of their workshop, they had marionettes going all the way back to the 20s when they started wow. their careers. Uh-huh. And I just was, the eyes were popping out of my head seeing all these beautiful creations. Yeah. And I said, you can have this much fun and earn enough money to live in a house like this. And uh, could you teach me how to make a puppet, please? <laughs> and that's sort of how it got started. Yeah. I was just goofing around to do a Punch and Judy show, and they very kindly took me in and helped me out and got me on my way. And yeah, that's great. How did you get involved with Henson? <laughs> I was telling that story in Tucson only yesterday. <laughs> Originally, uh-huh. I mean, uh, the Muppet Show had been going on so long that I was watching it from my parents' house, you know, as a teenager and sitting right in front of the TV set trying to work out if it was arm rods with, you know, how all of it was being done, what was the tricks behind the camera and everything. And I'd started at this point, right after university, I was doing a bag puppet booth. It's a hand puppet booth, but it fits on your shoulders and you could just walk around. 
and I was doing quite well uh, going to fairgrounds and shopping malls and busking, putting out the hat and all that. So I decided that I would try and get a job with the Muppets. And I got on the train, it's about two and a half hour train ride down to New York City from my folks' house. And I got on the train with my puppet booth. Uh -huh. And in the middle of the street outside of Henson's in New York, I put this puppet booth on. And I went inside and my dragon gave them my CV. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then I went back out the door again. Yeah. Never heard back from them again. Yeah. <laughs> so I figured, oh, well, I'm not going to be doing puppets for a living. And I um, ended up moving to New York City but working in theater lighting. Okay. I did uh, Broadway and off-Broadway shows for setting up the lights and running the light rigs and everything. And then one of the guys I was working with doing that mentioned that Henson's was looking for people to work in the workshop. So this time I went over and just did it as myself instead of trying to be clever. <laughs> and got interviewed and my dad had done radio controlled airplanes so I knew how to plug in servos and stuff right. and it got me in the door. Wow. So. That's so great. And so what were the first projects you did for the Henson Company? Um, well Sesame Street was going at the time so we were doing stuff for Sesame Street. We were uh, building things for the Dark Crystal but we actually filmed the Great Muppet Caper first because mm -hmm. Dark Crystal Jim was so nervous to get it right yeah. that it had a four-year pre-production. Right. So we did the Great Muppet Caper. So I, I built the um, radio-controlled doubles for Kermit and Miss Piggy and Fozzie. Wow. And we had one for Gonzo, too, for the hot air balloons and everything. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was mainly working with Foz Fazakas in the shop and wow. making what was later to be known as animatronics because it wasn't called animatronics right. when we were doing it back right. then so well i guess moving to star wars kind of what was that like moving from henson to lucas in terms of the work and and what was expected <laughs> well i i had just left when the star wars came along i had just left the muppets okay. I'd gone to Jim, we were at his house one night and I had this whole long conversation with him and I was saying basically that I would like to be one of the puppeteers on Fraggle Rock. Uh -huh. And he said to me that he felt that my real value to the company was doing the animatronic work. Uh -huh. And as a young guy I didn't understand and I thought what he was saying was that he didn't think I was a good enough puppeteer. And the only reason I really wanted to be the puppeteer instead of building the animatronics was because the puppeteers got paid more. Mm -hmm. So it was a money thing, you know. But anyway, because he wouldn't give me a job as a puppeteer on Fraggle Rock, I thought, okay, I'm getting pigeonholed here. I'm getting stuck in a rut. And so I left Muppets. Uh -huh. And I went back to my apartment in New York City, and I was sitting there unemployed going, what the hell have you just done? All you ever wanted to do was puppets who were working for the biggest puppet company in the world, and you quit. Yeah. You must be out of your mind. The telephone rings. <laughs> it's my friend Mike McCormick, who I'd worked on Dark Crystal with right. and that over in England. And um, he had just, he'd been working with Phil Tippett at ILM right. on stuff. He was working on um, uh, Blue Harvest Horror Beyond Imagination, right. which is what it was called then. And uh, he was doing 
the original version of Sice Noodles before I redesigned her. And he'd done her as a classic marionette, but she was five foot tall and weighed 65 pounds, so she was very heavy for a marionette. And he was trying out, just practicing with her, see how she moved and stuff, and she pulled him off the scaffold because she was so heavy. Oh, wow. And he fell off the scaffold and broke his arm, so he was now out of work himself. He couldn't carry on the job. And he said, Tim, if you get out here straight away, you might be able to get a job on it, you know, take my place, because I've mentioned your name to him. So I, I talked to the producer, and he said, oh, you know, really can't afford to fly anybody out from New York just to do an interview. We'll find somebody here in L.A., you know. So I said, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll do a deal with you. I'll fly myself out there, and if you don't want to hire me, no skin off your nose. But if you do hire me, then you'll reimburse me for the flight. And as a producer, he, he liked that straight away. You know, yeah, I, I like this kid. He's making deals, so I like this kid, you know. So I flew myself out there, and I got the job. So they did reimburse That's me. Good. So That's that good. worked yeah. all good. Yeah, yeah. And then I was working with Phil Tippett in the Creature Shop. That's the dream. I mean, so when you were working with Phil Tippett, what kind of direction were you giving him in terms of making... Oh, her? well, the story that you brought up here, the good story, is actually about Akbar. Okay, okay. Because in England, we did things a bit differently than they did in L.A. Okay. And the, the thing that the, the sort of standard thing at that time because they hadn't really started. Jim was really at the head of the pack using servos for anything. Mainly it was all done cable control. So you'd have the full body suit character, but because you got the person in there, there wasn't a lot of room to put mechanics in as well. So you'd have the full body suit just for establishing shots. And then what they were doing in California was they'd have this big two by four tabletop and they'd mount the character's head on it, and then that would end up having 50 cables run out of it. But you'd end up with this static thing that could just do strip shots, you know, really close close-ups, so that you could see the eyes blinking, moving around, and the cheeks moving and all of that. And just before this, coming out there to do that, I had been working with Rick Baker, who was doing Greystoke over in England, and I tried to talk him into making the gorilla close-up a puppet. Okay. Because if you took it up off the table and just started moving around, it needed half the number of cables because you couldn't see it anymore, but you got a much more dramatic thing. Well, Rick fired me off the production. <laughs> so I got out there and I was working with Phil Tippett and I was looking at Akbar and going, what this needs to be really is a puppet, you know, like for the close-ups, because you can get so much more out of it. But because I'd just been fired for this idea, <laughs> I was extremely nervous, but I went up to Phil one night and said, Phil, I, I got this idea, and I, I really think it'll work, and if you just give me a chance, I'm sure you won't be disappointed. I can show you it'll work, you know. And I basically started crying, so he said, oh, stop crying, you can do it, you know. Yeah. And he gave me the opportunity. And um, so the close-up Akbar, the one you say, it, see, saying it's a trap and all that, was actually a hand puppet that I had built. Yeah. My head's inside his chest, and I got a monitor in there yeah. and doing the mouth Muppet style with cable-controlled eyes and all that. So That's so great. Yeah, there's a great documentary from around the time Jedi came out, Classic Creatures, and it shows you doing that, and it shows you doing the size noodle stuff, and the slice of Trump. Okay, well, you've already heard the story about how I got the job with Mike falling off the scaffold. Right. 
So with Sai, I decided she wasn't going to do that to me. Okay. And I created what I called, I, I referred to her as a reverse string marionette. Because okay. she was still operated by strings, right. or cables, but the ones over the top were connected to bungee. Mm -hmm. Then that held up all the weight, and I was underneath, and I actually pulled her down to the stage instead of holding her up from the stage. And one of the things that really worked nicely about that was most marionettes, you know, the Thunderbirds in that, when they try to walk around, they have this very sort of light-footed lyrical quality about them. You know, they sort of float around. But Cy could stomp her feet on the floor, you know, because those were connected directly to my feet and everything. So it actually worked really well. Yes. One out of 12 times. Okay. Unfortunately, when the day came to turn over, we did the first take, uh -huh. and the director said, moving on, and I came running out from underneath saying, oh, please, God, no, don't make that the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what ends up being, you know, <laughs> my thing on the film, because it was, it was horrendous, you know. And he let me have take two, which was better than take one, but it wasn't the twelfth take. So I do understand why they replaced her with the CG. Right. But if they'd let me do the 12th take, they wouldn't have had they to. Have had to Cause we did have her, we had her down, you know. But I will say on record, that is a travesty replacing size noodles in the special editions with the, with the lips. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so let's talk about salacious then. Yeah. I love salacious. What was kind of that process and what, what did you try to bring to the character? Well, George used to come in after, he finished his day. You know, we were still working at 10 o'clock at night. But George would come down there, and he loved hanging out with the guys in the workshop and everything. And he'd just walk around and see what we'd created. And he picked up that character, and he looked at him, and he said, um, Salacious. Salacious Crumb, that's his name. So comes out, you know, it all gets written down. And that's what he did with most of the characters. You know, he would look at him, and he'd think, and he'd just... <laughs> what amused him and he'd say it. Right. So when it came time to puppeteer him, I said, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, we want you to puppeteer him. And I said, well, thanks, that's a lot of help for characterization and who this guy is and everything. So since George had named him that, I got out a dictionary and I looked up salacious. Uh -huh. And I think it said something like, um, someone who gets enjoyment from the misfortunes of others or that. So I said, okay, well, salacious by name, salacious by nature. And that's when I made him the cheerleader for the Rancor Pit Monster, right. you know, because we actually, you always shoot more than you see. And I think we probably fed about three different people to the Rancor Pit Monster. Uh -huh. And every time, salacious was right there on the end, uh, I love it when the bones crunch, <laughs> you know, and all that sort of thing. And he was getting... Uh, very excited and very happy right. the worse it was for the poor soul who went down to meet the rancor right. you know so <laughs> it sort of came he was sort of my <laughs> i scared myself a bit because he was quite an evil little guy and i always thought of myself as a nice guy but for some reason when he was on i did get a lot of enjoyment out of being evil <laughs> well, i did hear this is not evil but I, i've heard a story and i try not to lead with questions so i'm just gonna okay, there's a story yeah. about you, Salacious Crumb, and Harrison Ford, that I've heard, and I think the audience would love to hear it as well, because it is a very good story. It's I, a long podcast? It's a, it's, it, is, it takes a bit to tell It is story. a long podcast. I mean, it depends on how much time we have, but... Okay. It was the scene where Harrison was being unfrozen out of the carbon. Right. 
and it was th this was the biggest moment of the whole movie because after Empire Strikes Back, did he survive? Did he not? Now, personally, I think it, more than the carbon freezing, it had to do with how much was Harrison going to ask to do in the next movie, whether or not he unfroze. But yeah, that's just me speculating right. on it, you know. Of course. So, because it was such an important scene, the lighting guy says, I want all of you in costume to do the lighting because I want to get it just right. And we're like, oh man, you know, we can put our costumes on sticks and stuff. It's still the same. Yeah. No, you all have to be in costume. So we were in our costumes with me and Slices under the floor with the arm through a little hole like this for four hours waiting to do take one of this particular shot. So finally the four hours is up. We do the first take. Harrison comes sliding down out of the carbon. Carrie runs in, plants a big kiss on him, and the curtains open, and Jab and all the cronies go, We saw you kissing, we saw you kissing. <laughs> like that. And at the end of the take, Harrison goes over to the director and says, All these puppet characters, are they going to talk over my line? Are they going to laugh over my line? Because I don't want to have to come back and do ADR, you know. And Richard said, No, you're quite right. You know, we don't want to have to do that. And he came over to us, he said, guys, that was exactly what I wanted from you, lovely. But on the next take, could you all do it in mime? So next take, Harrison slides out, Carrie comes in, we open the curtains and... That doesn't work on a podcast, does it? <laughs> <laughs> we did it all in mime. Now Richard, I, I puppeteer the puppet off a monitor, which is the feed through the camera. So I was able to see him setting up the shots and everything. And Richard used to love in between takes when there was time to kill. He'd sit down and he'd chat to Slacious and we'd have all these conversations about directing and setting up shots and all this kind yeah. of thing, you know, and I'd wind him up about it and that. Anyway, he came and he sat down next to Slacious while Harrison is getting stuck back into his carbon again and said, uh, so Slacious, what'd you think of that take then? And he looks up at him, and I thought I'm just talking to him through the floor. But unbeknownst to me, the sound guy had decided to get a cup of tea, and in case I needed to say anything important, had left the volume up on my microphone. So I, there with him just up sitting next to me up there, and I look up and I go, yeah, the take was all right, but this Harrison geezer, is he going to talk during a laugh because it's really putting me off? And this went booming through the speaker over the floor, and the crew all started laughing, <laughs> which unfortunately made Mr. Ford not laughing, sure. and he basically left the stage and went to his dressing room and said he was not coming back on set until the bleep bleep that had said that was fired from the production. So Chris Newman, the third AD, he was a young guy about 23, 24 years old, who I noticed um, is now executive producer on Game of Thrones, so okay. he's done okay he's, for he's himself. Okay. Mm -hmm. But anyway, this kid comes down underneath there, crawling over to me, and he says, Tim, I've got bad news for you. Harrison won't come back on set until we fire you off the production. I said, can I apologize? It was just a joke, man. I, was just, you know, I wasn't really trying to... No, no, we, we have to fire you. So I went, well, we're still filming. If I'm fired, who's going to do the puppet character? And he looks around and he says, well, 
you are, but if anybody asks you, you got to tell them you're the new guy. <laughs> and they even started printing the call sheets every day after that with Salacious Crumb, the new guy. They, <laughs> my name just disappeared from the world at that point. You know? oh, but nobody go. knows who does the puppets, you know, so. <laughs> that is so great. I guess we've talked about Akbar, we talked about Slice Noodles, and we've talked about Salacious. One of the things I want to kind of address now is of these new movies was the introduction Admiral Akbar and of the heritage Nino. characters yes. the heritage characters uh, what was it like kind of returning so many years later and what was the difference were you the man in the suit this time was it still the puppeteering what was kind of the process of getting back in character <laughs> yeah we didn't need to puppet anymore yeah <laughs> fast forward 30 years and mm-hmm. I've now got my carbon fiber custom fit helmet in there right. with 38 servos surrounding me right. so it's kind of like having your head inside a cage full of budgies all chirping at the same time heat wise and being able to see wise it was pretty much exactly the same uh-huh. <laughs> i could only see out of one nostril you know and that was only when the servo lever wasn't coming up across and making the nose move you know but there was it was um mark jeffries thank you um he's was on a control system. So he's now doing the the dialogue and the mouth sync for the character and I'm doing the the body actions and everything for him. So it is as as it was back then. I mean I told you the original was cable controlled. Well it was Mike Quinn <laughs> operating the cables for Akbar and I was doing the eye pullings for Nine Numb. Right. So you know we, we both work for Muppets and that's the way it was done. So yeah. I love it. It's a group effort. Yeah, yeah. and then you you were back for Rogue One as a different Mon Cal, which was <laughs> yeah, which is exciting. Well, when when Tops um, printed up the picture, yeah. and we needed to sign, it's like, so what am I going to sign? They said, what do you mean? They said, well, the character's name on set was A thirty eight twenty five, but because I had done Akbar before, and this guy was white. They all called me Milky Bar. It was like the onset joke. <laughs> so they gave him the name. You know, they called Disney, and Disney said, "Oh, his name's Sholan." You know, they made it up. But <laughs> so his name officially is Sholan, but I always sign it Milky Bar because that's that's who he was when we were doing this stuff on set. So that is so great. We have the Milky Bar kid over in England. It's all <laughs> it's a whole TV commercial tie-in thing. Yeah. So there's a whole double joke going on with. Love them. it. And then, of course, the saddest part of Last Jedi for me was seeing... And for me, yes. Was, ...was Akbar's death. And you didn't now. see it. That's true. We filmed it, and then you didn't see it. So there is an Akbar death scene filmed. Oh, yeah. Because what I would love is just Admiral Akbar one last time, like looking at the camera and just then shooting off into space. But that's good to know that eventually it might, it might resurface. I'm sure it will. Yeah. I don't know what I can say. We all sign non-disclosure right. agreements these days, and I'm too old to lose my house, right. so, you know, maybe I better not. <laughs> That's fine. Keep it coming. Uh, <laughs> maybe I better not say. Yeah. Uh, in the comic, they did an adaptation of Last Jedi, and he does get his death scene, which was very nice to see. I'll, I'll oh, pull up a I've never seen I'll pull that. I'll a picture. Yeah. It is very, very nice, because it was like a nice, like, okay, there it is, like, a little closure, at least for me, and I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah we were only given... Be, unfortunately, because of the internet, the need for secrecy now is just so gone to such an obscene level that we don't even know what's going on. You come into work in the morning and you're giving the page of the script that your dialogue is on for that day. 
which makes it really good to be able to rehearse beforehand and right. <laughs> work out what you're going to do. Or, you know. Right, because you got a page, yeah. So I come into work and it's like, oh, I hope they give me more to do than they did in the last episode. Because yeah. I was a little bit disappointed that yeah. they didn't really do much with Akbar and all right. that, you know. And then I read my script for the day and go, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> it was a nice run, I guess, yeah. you know. <laughs> Man. Well, I guess the hope now is maybe uh, Akbar has his own spinoff movie, right? We could all hope, right? Yeah. I'll yeah. be first in line. Uh, Mr. Rose, thank you so much. This was a huge thrill. Yeah, nice uh, talking to yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Mr. Rose for taking the time to talk to me live at Madness Comics in Plano, Texas, and a huge thank you to Zach McGinnis at Galactic Productions for letting it happen and being a big supporter of this show. Mr. Rose will be appearing this weekend at Grand Rapids Comic Con from November 9th to 11th, and if you ever get the chance to meet him in person, definitely do so. Next week's episode is with the legendary Kevin Rubio, so stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the force be with you.